So we've spent about maybe two months or more in and around 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Now I could stop right there and I could say, now nobody say anything out loud, but some of us know good and well there are things that we believe that there's probably at least one other person in the room who doesn't agree. We'd say there are divisions. Paul says, I appeal that there be no divisions, but that you all agree. We've been talking about unity in the church. The first thing that I did was try to summarize the doctrine this way. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Then I went on to paint or try to to give a picture of that unity. What what is it that we're after? Everybody sitting around a campfire singing kumbaya? No. The unity that the Bible sets forth for a local church like ours is one uh, that I, I defined as the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. All of us together pursuing harmony in doctrine and practice. This side of eternity, we will not arrive. We will not achieve it perfectly. We will achieve it in glory, but, but we ought to at least get ourselves on the track. Aim for it. Pursue it. Go after it. That's the picture. Then I went on to elaborate on the priority of unity. I'm saying it must be among our primary and consistent labors. Based on the Scriptures, I would say it's a priority. It should be our priority. And I used four criteria to prove that. The number of references to unity in the Scriptures. We looked at nearly 40 of them. The placement of some of these references in very significant portions of Scripture. The language that's used in the references leads us to believe the Apostle and others meant what they were saying. Strong language is used. And then we saw last Lord's Day the denunciation of alternatives. Uh, The opposite of unity, disunity, discord, division. We learned God hates. God hates those who sow discord. And we saw many passages with reference to that. And, And hopefully the conclusion from all of that work is, we agree, unity must be a priority. We must labor to obtain and maintain this unity. Now, I've come to the final step in unpacking uh, this doctrine, which I'm calling the practice of unity. We've seen a picture of it, the picture of unity. We've seen the priority of it in the Scriptures. Now we're moving to the practice of unity. And back, if we go back to that original statement, obtaining and maintaining, that's the practice. We've got to obtain it, we've got to maintain it. Or we've got to get it, and we've got to keep it. We've got to acquire, get ourselves into this pursuit, and then we have to maintain that pursuit throughout the life of the church. And what we're going to do is cover 
several things that we can do to nurture this type of unity in the church. And then after that, I'm going to bring in some big guns from the past, men who are no longer with us, dead men, and we're going to let them teach us how to work in a church when there is division, how to heal divisions and disunity and things like that. So that's, that's what we're going to do all under this heading of the practice of unity, obtain and maintain. Now, many of the texts that we've seen already already had applications in them. As we read them, most of you were able to discern the application and, and in conversations. You, you have said uh, as much, even though we haven't really used those texts to draw out the application. I just sort of pointed out, here's the subject, but it's easy to see. Some of those we're going to bring back in to support this, these specific applications. In other words... Everything that we've done so far is just trying to prove and show unity is important. Now we're going to make application. You might sit there. This might be the... We could think of this as the, the perspective of the pew. Maybe you would say, I am convinced by the Word of God that obtaining and maintaining unity must be our priority. So what do I do? What do I do now? That's the, the, I'm going to try to answer that. Now hopefully this, this doesn't add to the confusion or, or make the, the matter any more confusing. I, I like to try to hang my hat on a single or, or as few texts as possible. If I can find one text that I think adequately sums up the point, I want to try to do that. And I think that we have such a verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. And that's why I've, I've asked you to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Again, I think this verse adequately summarizes everything that we need to do to obtain and maintain unity. 1 Peter 3, 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you, that's corporate, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Or you might have the word courtesy. In this verse, this one verse, there are five things, again, that I think adequately sum up the whole of the application. So if we want to put it in imperative form, you say, I'm convinced that I need to labor to obtain and maintain unity. I'm convinced we need to do this. What do we do? Then I would say from... The Apostle Peter, labor for unity of mind, strive to be sympathetic to one another, exercise brotherly love, nourish within yourself a tender heart toward one another, and be of a humble mind and or be courteous. Now I'm going to open up each of these separately. Maybe they'll each get their own sermon, maybe not. I'm not sure yet. But I do, I do want to open up the first one this morning. If we are to obtain and maintain doctrinal and practical harmony, then we have to all engage ourselves to labor for unity of mind. Unity of mind. Now that sounds very similar to what we saw in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Let me make the comparison here. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.10, we have it translated, same mind. And the word that's used there for mind, the Greek word is the word nous. N-O-U-S. Nous. Here in 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8, we have a phrase, unity of mind, but it's actually one word, homophron. And you can hear in that one word two separate parts. Homo, same, and then phroneo is the word that would be used in that phrase for mind or the, or the root for mind. In these two verses, then we have two words. Nous, mind, translated mind. Phroneo, also translated mind. Two different words. In English, very often they are both translated with the same word. The word nous in 1 Corinthians refers to the, the whole of the mind, all of the, the whole seat of all of your intellectual powers. That would be like the broadest view. Be of the same mind. The, the word phroneo here used in 1 Peter refers to the specific content of that intellectual activity. We might, we might say it this way. Uh, there is our thinking... And then there's our thinking on a specific subject. Uh, I'm thinking of this versus thinking in general. That's, that's the, how the two words are connected. So if we take Paul's appeal in 1 Corinthians 1 and we sort of trace it to an application in 1 Peter 3, we could say that we are to pursue unity of mind in the broad sense by working toward unity in the specific contents of the mind, the little things that we think about. If we work toward unity in thinking of the specific things altogether, eventually the, the whole content will be unified, will be of the same mind. We start with the small and work our way to the larger things. John Calvin rephrases 1 Peter 3, 8, this phrase as, Think ye all the same thing. Now that clearly doesn't mean that our minds will somehow become synchronized so that when you're at your house and you're thinking about tying your kid's shoes, all of a sudden my mind starts thinking about tying my kid's shoes. Or you think about making supper and all of a sudden my mind starts thinking about making supper. That's not what we're talking about. It's not, it's not synchronized thinking. The language in both of these passages, especially in 1 Peter 3, is dealing with our specific convictions. We would call them beliefs. Another commentator, Matthew Poole, uses this language. Be of one mind in the things of the faith. That gets a little more specific. And then John Gill, who's even more clear, explains this statement of Peter as referring to, quote, sameness of judgment with respect to the doctrines and ordinances of the gospel in which saints should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He actually uses the language of 1 Corinthians 1.10 as he comments on 1 Peter 3.8. There's clearly a connection here. We're talking about the content of our thinking is doctrinal. And then he goes on, still quoting Gill. There is but one Lord who gives the same laws and ordinances to one as to another which are to be kept alike by all. And there is but one faith, one doctrine of faith, which is uniform and all of a piece. One, one piece of cloth, he's saying. 
and but one rule and standard of faith, the sacred Scriptures. In other words, we are to be united in the same mind, generally speaking, the, the big picture. But the way that we get there is by working toward unity in specific convictions and beliefs. And of course, we know that the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience is the Holy Scriptures. So if we're going to obtain and maintain unity, then all of us have to turn our attention to the revelation of God in the Scriptures. Now you are really surprised. You say you just talked for 15 or 20 minutes and the, the conclusion is we need to be reading our Bibles more. Hopefully you're not surprised at all. That, that would, would actually solve so many problems. The first step in obtaining and maintaining unity, doctrinal and practical harmony, is to give yourself to the study of the truth in God's Word and encourage others in the same endeavor. Or if we put it in corporate terms, we must all be consistently giving ourselves to the study of truth in the Scriptures and we must all be encouraging one another in that endeavor. Now, let me, let me clarify and try to narrow this down a little bit because I, I'm just assuming I am, maybe I'm naive, I'm assuming if you are capable of reading, you're reading the Bible every day. I'm assuming that. We're in, a, we're in a Christian assembly. So I'm assuming that you're reading the Bible every day. And you know that reading the Bible every day is personally useful. And being personally disciplined and familiar with Scripture is an essential first step in all of this. But what I'm trying to establish here is a distinct purpose in your time with God's Word, and that is to settle yourself down on particular doctrines and teachings. In other words, in your reading, bring the matter to an, a close by saying, the Word of God clearly teaches blank. Whether you say it, maybe you say it out loud. Maybe just affirm it in your mind. Maybe you write it down on a piece of paper. Come to a settled matter of con conviction. Now again, you, some of you might think, well, that's, does that really need to be said? Tell me if this is not the case, that many times, if not most often, our reading of the Scriptures concludes this way. Close it. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Would you please help me to understand and apply it today and go with me today and help me to live in accord with the truth or something like that? We've read it. We know there's something good in there. We know we need His help to understand it. But have we closed with any statement of truth? Do we know any doctrine? Have we learned? Have we come to a belief? What do we want God to help us with? God's saying, I gave you my word. What, what, what do you want? You, you won't trace it on out to its conclusion. And that very often requires of us, I would say almost always requires of us, meditation and thinking. Usually, we've got in our minds 
a set pattern of reading or a reading uh, schedule or something. I'm scheduled to read this. When I get to the last word of the last verse, I'm done, close it, and let's pray. Rather than, whoa, what did I just read? What does it teach me? What, what truth have I learned here? Fix your mind, settle it down on doctrine. And then, here's, here's the next step. Receive that teaching, recognizing that you are in fellowship with others, both historically and presently. Learn to think in concert with others. Learn to believe using terms like the ancient creeds of the church, we and us and our. You don't get to be alone in your faith. That's just not Christianity. That's not how it's designed to work. Christ has a people, a bride, a church. We're not alone. Learn to think in that, in, in those terms. See, we are, all of us are coming in, I, I, would, I, I wish I could say at the tail end. I don't know if we're at the tail end of it or not, but we, we come in after several generations of Christians who have been infected with a kind of individualism and private spiritualism that's just not biblical and it's not historical, it's not Christian. We all grew up using terms like, I'm doing my quiet time. Or I'm doing my devotions. You never read anybody in, in the old, old times using words like that. They, they had ideas that were similar. It's not like they ignored that you would be along with your Bible and prayer. But we have these little sort of taglines that we put over things. And then we, we, we define the whole thing by that tagline as just this little private thing that we've done by ourselves. And then it, it's all about us. It's all centered around me and, and accomplishing this thing or whatever I've, I've, I feel like I should be doing in my daily routine. Most of us have heard others who will, will say, studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible, this picture is painted. I've never been in one of these groups, but this picture is painted where everybody sits around in a circle and they read a verse and then everybody goes around and says, what does this verse mean to you? You know, you've heard men say, they'll, they'll describe that and they'll say, that's not how this works. I've never been a part of one of those groups, but I affirm that's not how this works. Most of us, we hear that, right? <laughs> that's not how this works. But then when we get by ourselves, that's exactly what we do. What does this verse mean to me? Take, take that back into that little illustration, that imagery. Most of those men who would give that small group picture, they would say, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means. The same is true when you're by yourself. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what God means when He said it, when He wrote it. You see how we, we take that and we, we, we will scoff at others, but we don't realize we, are, we do the exact same thing very, very often. We, we, we want to know what, what does it mean to me, or we'll, we'll say things like, the Lord taught me, and, and I'm not arguing that that doesn't happen, that the Lord does not teach us from His Word. But very often, because we lean so strongly towards personal and a subjective, private way of thinking, our private interaction with the Word becomes the standard by which we judge all other interactions and all other things. So your personal interpretation or your personal feelings will then begin to take precedence over long-held interpretation and understanding of a text. 
So people, and, and there will be little groups here and there will say, well, this is what we believe. You say, well, that's a strange thing to believe. Well, did you not see this verse right here? Well, on the surface, I could see that. But then when you survey history, you say, nobody in the history of the church has ever used this verse that way. I don't think that's what it means, right? I don't think it means what you think it means. But we, we let that dictate how we read the Word, or your emotional experience in private will very often become the standard by which you judge public things. These are all just little evidences that we are, are thinking very individualistically. And you, you'll meet people like this. Their time in, in private, their time in the Word is very emotional, very ecstatic, and things like that. They come into a worship service like this, and, and they say, you, oh, you people are all dead and boring and blah, blah, blah. Well, just because it's not like what they're used to. It's not um, what they get privately. They have to subject themselves to a, a, a corporate activity and people don't like that. Very often coming up with a meaning of a text is more preferable than studying a text. You just read it. What do you think it means? Well, I think it probably kind of means this. Now that you could do that in about 45 seconds. It might take you about 45 minutes to an hour to actually invest some time in studying and thinking through the, the meaning and application of a particular text. We don't want to do that work very often. It's, it's so much easier to say, well, I just feel like God says this and He taught me this. To put it another way, we, we aren't disposed in our generation to read and study with what Baxter called last week a, a public mind. We don't think that way. We don't want to think in concert with our brothers and sisters or the church as a whole. We, we don't like to, to try to find our place in the history of God's people. Christianity began before we got here. And it'll be going when we're gone. We, we need to find ourselves in the stream, but very often we delight in novelty. And every generation does this. And we're no different. We delight in novelty. Every generation, sometimes to greater or differing degrees, this, the, the present generation, some men will delight in novelty while some men hate that novelty. Then the next generation, people get used to the novelty. Then the next generation, what was once novelty is now our tradition. We stand on it. And every generation, we, we go through that. Well, we have to realize we are or have the potential to be in one of those places, either delighting in the novelty or despising the novelty, when really it's better just to look broadly at the church as a whole, history, and of course use that to help us as we understand and study God's Word. Now this doesn't mean that somebody who thinks this way is automatically going to fall into error. Uh, the student of the Scriptures will, in many significant matters, usually discover the truth. The truth is pretty plain in most areas. It's not required if you think privately, you immediately go into error. But it is a pattern that historically those who have developed the greatest heresies of the church have been those who despised the public thinking, despised uh, historical interpretation, and they sat alone by themselves and they said, I've got my Bible and I can interpret it. And that's where heresies come from because they rejected the long-standing teaching of the Christian church. So what I'm encouraging here is just another layer of intention or thought or perspective that maybe you haven't thought of before that is, is absolutely essential to me when I study God's Word, when I'm preparing 
I, I want to find myself in the stream of God's people. I, I don't want novelty. I don't want to be creative. I don't want to find a new teaching. So if we are to obtain and maintain doctrinal and practical harmony, then you and I, or we, must give ourselves to the study of the truth of God's Word and encourage others in the same endeavor, all the while keeping the corporate nature of the church in our minds, both historically and presently. You are a part of a body of people that spans the ages. And you are also a part of a body of people that can all meet in one room for, for a few hours every week. Think in those terms. Keep that before your mind. As we saw in Acts 2.42, what happened when the, the, these people were saved? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't each one of them come forward and receive a Bible and run off to their own study and then all, everybody come back and say, well, here's what I found. Here's what I think it means to me. No, they didn't do that. They all sat themselves down and listened to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the doctrine of the apostles. So now let's apply that. The unity that we're after is doctrinal and it's practical. Therefore, in our study of God's Word, we must study to know doctrine and we must study to discern proper practices. First, doctrine. As you and I study God's Word, we must aim at being doctrinal people with this corporate mindset. This means that we must read the Bible, read it daily, read it and reread it often. Read large portions of Scripture. Read small portions of Scripture. Read the Bible. Again, I'm assuming if you can read, you're reading the Bible every day. That, that's my assumption. But we're not just readers of the Bible. There's more to it than that. Many of us, if we're honest, would have to say that we read the Bible daily, but that most of our specific doctrinal content we got from somewhere else. Uh, books or sermons or teachings or something like that. And, and what tends to happen is there becomes a disconnect between what I confess and believe and what I'm reading. And that, that can be a problem. It's not always a problem, but we, you, you want to close that gap. You need to be able to affirm right doctrine. And you want to get to the point where if somebody says, show me that in Scripture, you can say, oh, well, let's just go there right now. I'll show you. You want to get to that point. You might not be at that point. You want to close that gap in your thinking. But most of the time, this is just I believe this is just the way Christianity and discipleship works because most of us begin to be discipled prior to being able to read and things like that. We... we we come to convictions and then as we study and read, we see it in the Scriptures and the gap closes. We're, we're readers, but we have to be more than readers. We have to trace it down to belief. Again, I'm not saying that we can't learn doctrine from people or books, human authors, sermons and things like that. I actually believe the exact opposite. I don't, I, I, I don't like the, the false dichotomy of learning from God versus learning from men because I don't believe that it would be wise to pit a man against his wife. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't believe that it would be wise to pit 
Christ in His Word against the Spirit of Christ working through His church, opening up and teaching and explaining His Word. They're not two separate things. It's not wise or biblical to take the teaching of Christ and say, well, I've I've been taught by Christ and you've been taught by men. Pit Christ against the teaching of Christ through His Spirit-filled bride and the gifts that He Himself has given to the church. He gave gifts to men. I'm not, so don't hear me saying you can't learn from other places and other, other ways. And again, neither am I saying that we shouldn't have doctrinal convictions before we can personally verify them from the Scriptures. Again, I, I teach my children doctrine long before they can read. And I don't say, now, now listen, don't believe this until you learn how to read. I say, believe this in truth. And it will be confirmed later on. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but... What I'm advocating for is that as we read our Bible, we learn to recognize the doctrinal content for ourselves. It might not be a brand new discovery. It might just be a confirmation of things you've always believed. You you discover another another text or another place where it affirms a doctrine like the deity of Christ. Well, that's not giving you a brand new belief, hopefully. It's just confirming it. And you, you learn, there's one I can put in my catalog. I can trace that, the, the doctrine to its place in Scripture. I'm advocating, advocating for a way of thinking when you read that is doctrinal. Doctrine just means teaching. So doctrinal reading is reading in order to settle on a specific propositional truth. One of, the, one of the reasons that I preach the way that I preach is because this is a conviction of mine. Find the doctrine. If, I, if we just want to know what the, script, the text says and means, well, I, I can just pass out commentaries. Everybody read it. it, it you, in a lot of places, you don't even need a commentary. The, the meaning is right on the surface. It's not hidden. You can read it, you can understand it, but what is the doctrine? What does it teach me and then how do I apply that? We've got to learn to read that way. What is the text teaching? So we read it, but we're not just reading. We have to read it to settle on a doctrine. Obviously, it's going to require you to read. And many doctrines do lay on the surface. I I think the, the most clear doctrines on the surface of Scripture are the most important ones. The doctrine of the nature and character and attributes of God, the doctrine of the gospel, right on the surface, doesn't take much study at all. It's right there. Many of these things you will see as you read, and you just come to read and to affirm. This text is teaching this. Use your mind. But there are things that will require a more cursory, or more than a cursory Reading, what we would call a study of the text. Now, everybody's going to be at varying levels here. I'm not saying that everybody has to have the same level of, of depth of study or, or tools at their fingertips. Very often, a Bible with footnotes and cross-references is going to be very adequate and useful. But even something like a study Bible is going to be... That, that might be the furthest level that some people attain to. I just use a study Bible and use the study notes. Just settle on a teaching. What does the Bible teach? And these types of things help us. More often than not, simply considering the general context of a passage, reading it and rereading it slowly with thoughtfulness to the words and phrases, 
is going to get you a long way. Just read it and reread it slowly. One of the things I, I refer to is have a conversation with yourself and with it. Talk with it. Well, it says this, but then it says this, and these two words here. So if I put this together, what is it saying? I'm interacting with it. Talking to myself. I talk to myself. Talk to yourself and reason through it. Read it and reread it slowly. And very often, that will get you a long way in settling. Well, this text teaches this. Here's the doctrine. But then, coming back to that theme of studying in concert with the corporate nature of the church, it's at this point that we ought to feel the obligation to confirm our findings. We ought to feel. I, I hope you feel the obligation when you read. I read, I've studied, I've thought, it means this, but I feel like I want to make sure that I'm right. I want to confirm that. I want to verify that. This is, this is what's hated by our present evangelical culture. No, if that's what it means to you, you don't need to go any further. Well, I, I, but I feel like I need... I just want somebody to, to confirm it, to, to help me here. And I think self-doubt is, is good in this regard. We as Christians who are part of the universal church and a part of a local church should feel in ourselves a burden to verify that what we think the Bible teaches is actually what the Bible teaches. And then this is where commentaries are helpful. We have a confession of faith. If it's a particular uh, topic uh, that's addressed there, and this is where the local church is useful. Amen. Take advantage of the communion of the saints, the church that God has provided, the, the, the other people here, or even the elders. Now, I don't think this will be a surprising statement. The elders here are not the most knowledgeable people on the planet on every biblical or theological subject. But we are the ones that the Holy Spirit has made overseers to care for the flock of God here. And I think the elders would, would say, perhaps more than anybody, it is an act of submission to the will of God in faith to even ask the elders to confirm or verify something. Why do I say that? An act of faith. Because we know we don't know everything. You're coming to me? That's awful brave of you. Well... You're the one God's put here. Thanks for the confidence, you know, and then very often we'll say, well, I, I may have to research this. I may have to study. I may have to point you to somebody else. But that's, this is the way God has ordered His church to function. Hopefully none of that sounds self-promoting. Uh, Oftentimes because we are um, individualistic ourselves, we project that onto other people. If I'm like this, they must be like me. And so we assume if I ask an individual to help me with a particular doctrine or teaching, or if I ask the elders to help me with a particular doctrine or teaching, well, they're just going to give me their personal opinions. They're just going to give me their agenda on, on this or that matter. Well, the irony is in, in that is that so then rather than go to the church that God has provided, you just set and settle yourself with your own opinion and your own agenda. It's not like you don't want opinions and agendas. You just don't like anybody else's. God has given us a community, a people to help us as well as gifts for 19, nearly 20 centuries of His church. 
the point I'm making here is that we ought to feel a burden to confirm, to verify that the things that we're seeing and learning are correct, to make sure that we're heading in the right direction. If If I'm going on a trip and I'm doubtful that I'm going in the right direction, I don't want to drive four hours to find out I went the wrong way. I want to find out as soon as possible so I can turn, right? Very often, though, because our pride is in the way, when it comes to the teaching of Scripture, we would rather just go four hours, four years, four decades in the wrong direction rather than just stop and say, hey, I was reading this passage of Scripture. seems like it's saying this. What do you think it's saying? Just to ask for help. But our pride gets in the way. We don't, we don't like to do that. Verify and confirm what you're reading. Another extremely important way in which a church grows in unity of mind is through the preaching and teaching that happens in that church. Again, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The new believers collectively devoted themselves to the end-time activity of sitting and listening to the apostles' Teach And what happened? They all received the same teaching at the same time. What does that do? That unites the mind. You, everybody walks out. And we, most of us have had this experience. Hey, what would you learn at school today? You know, pretty much nothing. Imagine, the goal would be that we, we all leave here today and if we went single file out the line, out the door, and somebody said, what did you learn? It would be fairly unanimous. I learned this. I learned this, I learned this. Why? Because we all heard the same thing. We all learned the same things. It's a part of being united in mind. What could be more conducive to unity of mind than a group of people hearing the same things from the same teachers for week after week after week after week after week from the Scriptures? So pay attention or attend and and pay attention to worship services. to apply it more specifically, make it a point to attend the worship services. Make it a point to attend the worship services. When we attend worship services together, we all sit, we all hear the same things. If somebody goofs up with a, 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 a verbal or linguistic blunder, you know, everybody hears it, everybody knows, you hear what he said this, you know. If something correct is said, everybody hears it. We all hear the same things. We're all taught together. We hear the same things. We learn together. There's a unity of mind that is developed over time. Now you might say, that seems a little elementary. We, we have just descended from read your Bible every day to go to church. Well, notice that I did say, attend the services, not the service. Right? Attend worship services together. Sometimes I fear that there there are some who think the morning service is church and the evening service, well, that's expendable. That's superfluous. You can take it or leave it. That's more like extra. But, But those who are here know that the evening service is usually our more didactic time of teaching where we focus on doctrine in more detail. As a church, we have to keep in mind we are Sabbatarians. We do believe the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath. We do believe the whole day is the Lord's, not just the morning. And as a church, 
Covenant Bible Church, we have two services on the Lord's Day, not one. It's not one service and then an optional meeting. It's two services. Now, why is this so important? Well, obviously, to beef up the ego of the guy behind the pulpit. It makes him feel better when everybody comes. Now, that's not it. The reason, the purpose is that we all grow together in unity of mind and in doctrine so that we're all being trained and taught. So attend the worship services. And then secondly, strive with all that is in us to pay attention during the worship services. And I'm not ignorant to distractions, difficulties with children. I get to see them all. The people in the front don't get to see as many as I get to see them all. I know what's happening a lot of the times. And I have to work to, to work against that, to focus. And we all have to do that. Work to pay attention. Don't give up easily. Our, our, the temptation can be, my baby's having a bad day. This is a, a throwaway Sunday. Just give it up. We're, we're, we got nothing today. Don't do that. Work. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Strive to pay attention so that the Lord can, can teach you and sanctify you through that labor. The third thing, if in the providence of God you're absent from a service, take the time to listen, listen to the teaching online. That's the only reason we record our stuff, so that we can follow along and, and grow together. It's not to beef up website traffic. Nobody's paying attention to that. I don't even know how to find that information out. It's so that we can learn and grow together. If I... in in. Earlier this year, I was out of town for three weeks. That means I had six services that I had to catch up on. I put my headphones in, listen to six back to back to back to back to catch up so that I know that we're all learning, that I'm learning. I'm hearing what you're hearing. I want to be taught what you're taught. Listen, I'm not arguing that there isn't more helpful, biblical, theologically rich teaching that you may have access to elsewhere. I'm not saying throw all of that away. We do have the internet and we have literature. We can glean so much. But if we're merely content that each of us would go his or her own way in in every direction and we don't put forth the same or even more effort in the areas that God has ordained for us to be united in mind, then there's not going to be unity, at least not to the same extent. We we might all grow, but it would be in separate directions. What we're trying to do is grow together. A fourth thing is... Singing songs. Pay attention, or I should start with this, sing and pay attention to the songs that we sing and the teaching that is in the songs. As we sing, remember, we are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We're teaching. There's doctrine. This is the way that doctrines, the doctrines that we believe, are stated and confirmed repeatedly throughout the life of a church. I believe that God is immortal and invisible and God only wise because I sing it over and over and my kids know it. That's doctrine. That's the attributes of God. We're affirming through song and memorizing. Sing it and pay attention. Now, I'm not under the impression that we're able to let every truth and every song resonate in our souls every time we sing. For for many people, this is your perspective. Listen, I can either sing it or I can think about it, but my mind is not going to let me do both of those at, a, at an equal pace. Well, that's why you've got a, a hymnal. Take it home. Read the songs. Study through them. Think through them. Come back. If you know there's songs that we're going to be singing, especially the Psalms, um, 
we learn this way. This is a way that we affirm and teach one another doctrine. I have often thought how wonderful it would be just to do a series, a Sunday evening series, just going through the songs that we sing and the rich doctrinal content because there's so much there. Another way that we grow together doctrinally is by having conversations that center around the teaching of God's Word. Our Confession of Faith alone has 32 chapters of of doctrinal issues, some of them practical, that we could just sit and converse with. I, I taught through them. I guarantee if you come to me and say, hey, what did you say about at chapter 2, uh, paragraph 3, what was it? I would say, I have no idea. That's been a long time. Let's, let's, have, let's talk about this. Help me. Let's, let's learn. Conversations around what we believe. This strengthens our unity. These are all ways in which we can work toward obtaining and maintaining unity, specifically in the area of doctrine, And preeminent in all of this is the need to remember that we are a part of a covenanted community of believers. One significant section of our church covenant to which we've all agreed says this, and I've I've edited it to to get to the pertinent parts, but we, we have said, we engage by the aid of the Holy Spirit to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, to promote its spirituality and fruitfulness, to welcome and test biblically instruction from the Scriptures by the elders of the church, which accords with our confession of faith, seeking to grow toward biblical unity in the truth. All of these things, striving, advancement in knowledge, promoting spirituality, fruitfulness, welcoming and testing the teaching, the, the idea, the spirit behind all of that is we're seeking to grow in unity of the truth. That's what we want. Your personal knowledge and growth, that's going to feed into the advancement of the church. Your own growth and spirituality and fruitfulness, it serves to aid in the growth of the church body. When you test the teaching and study the doctrine and increase in understanding, you're aiming at unity in the truth. You say, I want to understand. If you think something has been said that's in error... You bring it up. I want to understand. If I've been wrong, I want to understand so that we come to a unity of the truth. Again, it's not just you and it's not just me. It's us. You're not on your own. There might be some of you here who have some ideas floating around in your head that you aren't willing to put on the anvil of Scripture and the witness of the church because you know you didn't get them from the Bible. Well, I don't want to put it to the test because it'll fail. Well, that's not seeking to grow in unity. That's the exact opposite. We want to grow in unity according to the truth of Scripture. If, If nothing else, my main force here is that we learn to think collectively or think as parts of a body, knowing that the church is good for us, that we never need to fear discovering the truth. I don't have to be afraid of that. You show me where I was wrong, I find out the truth, I'm not afraid of that. I never have to be nervous about the fact that we might become more unified in in and around the truth. The only reason any of us would be afraid of that is because of our pride. I don't want to to be shown that I was wrong. No, I'm not afraid of that. We, We should never fear that. So we should study the Word to know doctrine. Secondly, and this will be shorter, study practical matters. We're we're after doctrinal and practical harmony. 
which means that you're going to be aiming for unity of mind, not merely in matters of the faith or belief, doctrine, but also matters of practice, the way that we live. Keep in mind that the Word of God is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of obedience. And we should all be coming to the Scripture to weigh every facet of our lives by what God has said. Gill, again, he said, "...the church is but one body." With Christ as the head, there should be but one mind in it. There is but one Lord who gives the same laws and ordinances to one as to another and which are to be kept alike by all. We're all studying the same book, right? We're all governing our lives by the same book. Laws and ordinances cover the vast multitude of circumstances which span the whole of life. Because of our doctrine, I hope that we are all united in this doctrine... We believe Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of obedience from God. We agree on the doctrine, then the practice would be, let's go to the Word of God to discern our practice. How should we live? Because we're all working from the same Bible, there will be unity of mind if we will keep our nose in that book. It's in this area of practice or godly living that the law of God is very useful as well as the Proverbs are extremely useful because here's where we see God's mind and God's heart on moral issues, matters of life. We see the wisdom of God telling us what godliness looks like in areas like marriage male and female relationships, finances, work and labor, time management, child education and training. The Proverbs is full of wisdom. It tells us exactly what to do. We're not without light. We're not walking in the dark. It tells us. We give ourselves to it. Many times, that, many times we think that a particular issue isn't addressed by Scripture. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Well... We might say that. The Bible might address things like how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And when we put those two things together, that will greatly influence how I think about this, this topic over here. In other words, it is addressed. We, we often say the issue is not the issue. Why are we even questioning this? Because there are underlying issues. What does this, the Bible say about underlying issues that will then affect how I discern this or that particular uh, matter? But that requires us to study and to think deeply and, and to be willing to bring every question to the anvil of God's Word and hammer it out. Work hard at it. So again, we read it. Study it, meditate on it, think about it, confirm it with helps, especially with our church family. Trace it to a practical application. Since this text teaches this, that means in my life I must do this. Trace it to an application. I'm, I'm teaching how to write a sermon, by the way. This is, this is just homiletics, putting a sermon together. The text says this, therefore we do this. Oftentimes in this type of a study, we start with the issue. I've got a question in my life. Something that's happening. Well, what does the Bible teach about this particular issue? What are all of the areas and, and places where the tentacles of this issue reach out and touch other things? But again, I also want to make the point that this is not just uh, dealing with general or private holiness. 
there is still that issue of corporate unity. Learning and growing and applying biblical wisdom and morality as members of a church whose lives will automatically be intertwined, especially as we worship together. Part of our confirming and learning will be through those that God has given us to help us in the congregation. For example, 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, you heard it, and you teach it to other men, and those men will teach it to other men. Where? What men? The men in the church. They're going to teach the other men in the church. Titus 2, 3 and 4, older women likewise are to train the young women. Titus 2, 5, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Who's to urge? Titus is to urge. What younger men? The younger men in the church. Titus, the one overseeing these churches is to help the younger men in the church the older women are to help the older or the younger women in the church what's the point here the older will be teaching the younger the younger will be looking to the older all of this assuming god has ordained a community for us to learn in to help one another we're not by ourselves Through the work of the Spirit, we become spiritual brethren, spiritual parents, and spiritual siblings, as Paul said, his his child in the faith, Timothy. We have have children in the faith. We have parents in the faith. And we're fools if we won't make use of those that God has given because we're so prideful that we won't learn. Let your conscience and experience be the judge here. Are there not times or have there not been times when you come to a crossroads in life? A question. Here's an issue. We've got to make a decision. Maybe you're not quite sure what to do yet. But because you've already settled in your mind what you want to do, against the grain of conscience, against the grain of Scripture, against the grain of of Christian norms... You don't want to go seek counsel from those that God has placed in your life, your brothers and sisters, because you, you, I, I know what they're going to say. They're going to tell me the truth. They're going to tell me to obey God's Word. I don't want that. I'll just think in my mind. I won't ask. I'll settle it. Is it not true that when a decision is to be made very often, we'll say to ourselves, well, if I ask so-and-so, well, if I ask my elders, I know what they're going to say. And it's contrary to what I want to do. And therefore, I just won't inquire. I won't act. I won't make use of the godly counsel and wisdom of somebody else because I'm too prideful. I've already decided. I'm Pope at my house. If this is your attitude, it makes one wonder what we believe the church is. What does it mean to be a part of a church? Why would we be a part of a church? Is it really just to pacify your conscience about attending a worship service? Is it just to fill this time slot? Or is it really to be sanctified and to grow in holiness? God has placed something right before us for that purpose, but very often we just ignore it because we get our minds settled on a certain way. Why would Christ give gifts of wisdom and discernment to our brothers and sisters if He didn't expect for us to make use of that wisdom and discernment? You know this. I told the church in Hall River this. There are some people that are so gifted in one area. You look at another area of their life and you think, is this even the same person? 
what in the world? And you, it, it just baffles the mind. Now, that's evidence of a few things. Number one, we need the church body. We need other people because you are that person to somebody probably. Somebody is probably looking at you thinking, man, they're really gifted here. What in the world's going on over here? But that's very often we, we, we amplify where we are gifted and we cower where we're not gifted. And, and the point being Christ has given distinct and, and specific kinds of gifts to people that need to be brought together. The context is the church. We're foolish if we don't use it. Or the only other thought I would, or, or option that I have is that we would be under the impression that we have received all of the gifts and we don't need anybody else to help us. I don't think anybody would, would admit to that. Christ knows what we need and He has made provision for us in and through the church by His Spirit using His Word that we might labor toward unity in practical matters, ways of living. The third, third point is to encourage others. If we are going to obtain and maintain this doctrinal and practical harmony, we have to study God's Word, but also labor to encourage one another in these matters. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the action? Stir one another up to love and good works. What's the context of this action? Meeting together. The author says, don't not meet together. Instead, encourage one another. When? In the meeting, when you're together. And all the more. When the church gathers, these are times when we can encourage one another. One of the most important elements to obtaining and maintaining unity is the consistency with which we intentionally stir one another up and encourage one another when we are together. Encourage one another in the faith. Encourage one another in godly living. We need to be doing that. If I'm encouraging you and you're encouraging me week after week, year after year, to continue in the faith, to stand strong in doctrine and in godliness, it will be impossible for us not to be closer to one another in the end. Is it not true that what we believe is despised by the world? And is it not true that practical godliness is despised by the world? Have we not all figured that out yet? So then surely you don't expect encouragement to come from the world. They're not going to encourage us. So either we stand alone or we find encouragement where Christ has ordained for it to be in the community of the saints. Encouragement always comes from God by His Spirit and very often through His people. Some of you give in to the temptation to keep your whole life a secret. And then you wallow in discouragement and doubt. You miss out on the encouragement when you refuse to be a public person, or a word I invented, a churchly person. If you're not going to be a churchly person, you miss out on all the benefits. And what's even worse is when you straddle the fence of worldliness and godliness. Because the world is not going to encourage you in your godliness. 
And the church is not going to encourage you in your worldliness. You're just tottering there by yourself. you got nobody. You're all alone. And nine times out of ten, that person begins to complain that they are the victim, that nobody likes them, nobody wants to be around them, nobody helps them, and, and, and nobody understands my situation. You're absolutely correct. You're doing everything that's right in your own eyes. Nobody understands your own eyes. Only you do. Nobody can sympathize with that. That's what makes it impossible. You count yourself a victim rather than saying, look, I'm just going to give up and I'm going to submit to the teaching of God's Word in a community of people who have all made that same determination. We are going to follow God's Word. And there you find support. It's not going to be the world of support. It might be a small number, but there is encouragement there. The good news is that God has delivered us from slavery to sin and the bondage of the world through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need their support. We don't need their encouragement. We've been brought out of that. God has given each of us His Holy Spirit. He's provided for us a community of loving, supporting, encouraging spiritual family members who are also indwelt by His Spirit and gifted with wisdom and understanding. The picture that the New Testament gives us of a healthy, growing, unified local church is a good thing. And it is a gift from God that many people forfeit because they would rather remain in a, a, a private bubble of false spirituality or mysticism rather than just submit themselves fully to what the Word of God teaches and the way that God has ordained for these to be applied, these, these matters to be put into action. Let's endeavor to see ourselves as needy. A lot of times we don't think we're very needy. Our attitude is, I got this. If that's the case, then we don't need a church. God knows we're needy. That's why He's given us gifted people to help us. But we have to, to read and to study and to think and to live in concert with that because we don't know it all. So let's endeavor to see ourselves as needy and God's provision as a blessing to us. As we come to the Lord's table, as a reminder, we do practice here a, a, an effective closed table, which means members of this congregation only. And yet, we would never try to withhold somebody from the mind work and the heart work of contemplating and meditating upon Christ crucified for sinners. Uh, th this, we gather on the first day of the week because Christ has been raised from the dead for our justification. Before He was raised, He was crucified, bearing the weight of our sins. And His Father poured out His wrath upon Him in our place. So as we come to the, the Lord's table, we are remembering that, that we have a Savior who has stood in our place, who has borne our sins in His own body on the tree, not merely that we might escape hell, but that we might live for righteousness' sake. And so I want to read from Matthew's Gospel as the Lord institutes the supper with His own disciples. It says, And now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So we, we break the bread weekly as a reminder of Christ's body broken for us. 
We do not believe that there's any effectual power in this bread. The power belongs to Christ. The effectual power and the grace comes from the Holy Spirit as we, we cast ourselves again upon His mercy. And so as the elements are passed, give yourself to uh, the meditation of Christ crucified for sinners. And I'll read the warning from 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It is a blessing to have a Savior who stood in our place. So as the elements are passed, spend the time in prayer and confession and then of reveling in what Christ has done for us and then we'll come to the table together.